the bonds to buy now, new problems with peer-to-peer lending, and why renewable energy trust income could be under threat. You're listening to The Personal Finance Show with me, Kate Bearley. First today, are we at the crossroads with bond investing? Yields are still low, but inflation is creeping up and we could be finally on the brink of some interest rate rises in the US and the UK. I'm joined by Curtis Evans, Fixed Income Investment Director at Fidelity, to talk about where the bond market will go from here. Um, So Curtis, we've been in a period of ultra-low interest rates and low yields for a really long time now. It seems that central bankers want to start raising rates. Why, Why do we talk about that so much? Why is it an issue for bond investors? I think it's been a big concern for for most bond investors just because they're worried about what rising interest rates might mean for the capital values of their holdings. Uh, Normally, when you see rates rise, that can put some pressure on bond prices. And we've just had uh, news this week with Governor Carney. Uh, It looks very likely that the Bank of England will lift interest rates in November. And that's a bit of a sea sea change. You know, rates at 25 basis points are uh, exceptionally low historically at record lows. And once we start to see some rise, I think there'll be continued sort of pressure and discussion on on, um, bond markets and bond investing. Okay. um, So what have these super low rates done to the bond market in terms of which bonds are looking the most expensive? Well, I guess what they've done to the bond market is, is help performance, really. Up up until this point, with that fall in interest rates, that's been good for, for bond values. Government bonds in particular have done very well. And sorry, and why is that? So when, when interest rates uh, fall, capital, capital values will rise. So there's that inverse relationship between yield and price. Um, so interestingly, you know, you're at a point now, though, where, where yields are very low. There's not much value out there across the fixed income universe, and, and people are concerned that, that the tide is turning, but I still think there's you know, there, there are still ways to to uh, earn decent returns. You've just got to be a, a much more global and a, and have a different approach to what you did previously. Okay, but in terms of what investors might see in their own portfolios, um, in terms of the bonds that would have been uh, affected by these low rates, where would you where would you be looking? Is it predominantly at the gilts that that have been become very expensive? Yeah, I think gilts are certainly exp- expensive. So a ten year gilt. Uh, is around 1.4% at the moment in terms of in terms of its yield. Uh, so there's not much value in that market. If you go into the corporate bond market, you can certainly get a fair bit better value. So yields there around 2.5%. You're getting around 120 basis points or more of, of spread. So that's the additional yield on, t- on top of a corporate bond over a regular gilt. And we think that's that's decent protection for the added added risk. Um, elsewhere, you can go into markets like high yield and emerging market debt. Um, we generally think there's it's probably the, the sweet spot is that investment investment grade corporate bond universe. Two and a half percent doesn't sound fantastic, but it's still a you know a steady in- income stream and it can be a good diversifier against um, the equity side of a portfolio. Okay, well, we'll come on, I think, to, to high yield in a bit. But say we did get this rate hike in the UK in November, how big would the hike be and, and what would that knock-on effect be on bonds? What would you see happen, do you think? We would expect a 25 basis point in- increase in the, the base rate. Interestingly, the impact on bonds will depend on, on various things. But the first thing is you need to understand what's already priced in. Interestingly, um, it's essentially 80% priced. So if we do see that rate hike, there's actually going to be not much much impact. And that, that implies that people have anticipated it to the extent that they're already paying the price as Ab- if it had happened. Absolutely. So markets are, are very much sort of looking forward and, and preempting. I guess where there's risk is um, when you look 
at the bond market and try and assess what's in the price for interest rate hikes longer out. So if you look out to 2020, there's only another two more hikes on the horizon that's priced in. So there is some risk that you might get a little bit more repricing. Um, we think, though, that the Bank of England will be very cautious, very gradual. So they'll test the waters with one hike in November. Probably we'll see one more next year, but but that's it for next year. Generally speaking, if, if there was a hike, not that this is anticipated, but if there was a hike that was, you know, bigger than people expected, where do you see bonds affected the most? I think the government bond market would be most at risk at that point. Um, and and if you saw a real um, steepening of the yield curve or you saw bonds with uh, with longer maturities, if you saw their yields start to rise, that would have a, a bigger impact on capital values. I think the corporate bond market would be okay in that, in that scenario because you typically see central banks lifting rates when the economy's in a good shape, and that's good news for companies. So while you might lose out through government bonds, you tend to find some better protection on the corporate bond side. Okay. And so just how likely, you say it does seem quite likely, um, you know, just what have central banks been saying in the UK? Why, why is it that they want to start raising rates now? Well, I think they've been surprised by the economic resilience. Um, post the Brexit result, they were very quick to, to support the market uh, through interest rate cuts and expansion of, of quantitative easing. And I think they're, they're mindful. They want to start getting some powder dry for you know potential um, slowing in the economy or any uh, um, further uh, further upsets ahead. Um, the, the reality is that interest rates are very low. Uh, inflation is, is quite high. It's, it's going to be getting to 3%. Uh, towards the turn of the year uh, and that's going against their mandate where they're essentially wanting inflation lower than that uh, so they want to start to, to lift inter- interest rates normalise policy And um, let's talk about inflation because when we're thinking about bonds there are the two big things that you need to think about aren't there and those are rates and inflation yeah. and as you said we have got rising inflation so where do you see that have an impact I think the the inflation outlook is quite interesting. In the near term, you'll probably see a little bit more strength. Uh, so you will see CPI sort of hitting around the, th- the 3% level, and I think that will trigger a lot of headlines. But then if you project inflation a bit further ahead out into uh, the back end of 2018, we see inflation starting to, to normalise and come back down closer to 2%. And the reason for that is sterling was very weak a, a year or so back. Um, and so that weakness in sterling has, has essentially created a, an uplift in prices and it takes a while for that to filter through and at some point then that that sort of transitory impact starts to wane so next year we'll see that that fx pass through starting to to filter out of the cpi measures and we think inflation will start to moderate okay and in an environment when inflation is rising where do you not want to be what what is the impact of high inflation on bonds i i think you know inflation really is synonymous with with the level of interest rates. So if you did start to see a significant pickup in inflation, you'd expect the Bank of England to be lifting rates. And I think it's the government bond market, the guild market that would be um, most exposed to that. Um, ways to protect yourself against inflation is, is things like the inflation-linked bond market or even the credit market can provide some insulation as well. But I guess is the issue um, is the issue for bond investors that actually when inflation rises, the income you're actually earning is declining in real terms, isn't it? Absolutely. So is the answer to actually just, you know, move into higher yielding bonds because you hope then that the rate that they're giving you is, is higher than the rate of 
inflation? Yeah, I'd, I'd suggest a, a broad strategy, really, where you'd have um, some inflation-linked bonds because the benefit of inflation-linked bonds is they give you a coupon that's essentially indexed to, to inflation, so you're not seeing that real purchasing power get eroded. Um, the other part is, as you as you sort of infer, the, the credit market. So if you're going to high-yielding bonds where you're getting sufficient spread over and above a gilt yield, that gives you some, some cushion. And actually, if you think about companies, if they see rising inflation, that means that revenues are probably increasing, and that's good if you've got fixed debt. So companies, in some ways, can benefit from you know an, an uptick in the inflation environment. Okay, the inflation-linked bonds are an interesting one, aren't they? Because they seem to divide people, um, and there is a big issue with many inflation-linked bonds and bond funds, aren't there? Yeah. That actually they they have very large or very big interest rate risk. So in fact, even though the income looks high, um, the duration is very long. So if rates rise, that the capital value would be significantly eroded. Yeah, and that that's a big challenge, I think, for the UK investors in that um, if you just um, put an investment straight into a, a conventional inflation-linked bond fund that's that's um, buying index-linked gilts, you'll find it's got a lot of interest rate sensitivity and that's really swamping the returns. Um, the the UK linker market is very much dominated by the p- big pension funds in the UK. There's a lot of forced buying. And actually, when you look at the yields, the levels at which you can buy those instruments, they're ridiculously expensive, to, to be frank. Um, so when when we think about the inflation-linked market, we tend to um, advocate going global, going to things like the US inflation-linked market, even some of the markets in Europe. You can currency hedge, but you tend to find inflation is still quite a global phenomenon. So if you do see a pickup in UK inflation chances are you're also seeing higher inflation in Europe and the States, so you try and capitalise on that. Yeah, so it's one of those things, isn't it? You want to be buying it when no one wants to be buying it, I guess. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about the US, um, because as much as we might get rate rises here, it seems maybe even more likely in the US, does it? Well, I think the, the first thing they're going to start on is um, is balance sheet normalisation. So they're, they're pressing the, the green light on that one. They'll start they'll start tapering so they won't um, be reinvest, reinvesting coupons and principal on their Treasury and MBS holdings. And um, it's quite interesting. So the, the Fed's amassed essentially a balance sheet of about $4.5 trillion. They're going to start with $10 billion rolling off. And this month. is QE. This is this is their QE program. Ten billion a month will be will be rolled off, and then each quarter they're going to lift that by by another sort of ten billion, um, so that in twelve months' time it will be fifty billion per month rolling off. If you do the simple arithmetic, in about three years you're going to see about a third of the balance sheet wiped out, which um, which you know is something for the bond market to really uh, digest. The, the Fed's been at pains to to telegraph this in advance. There's been a lot of talk in the market, so you can say it, it is in the price. Uh, but I, th- I think there are some risks for US interest rates in the, in the nearer term, and that is because um, financial conditions in the states are, are very favourable. You've seen since the beginning of the of the year lower spreads, lower treasury yields, a rise in equity markets um, and weakness in the currency. If you put all that together, that's a very strong stimulus for the for the economy. So I think there's some chance that um, that, that uh, balance sheet tapering will come against a backdrop where you're getting some quite strong um, economic numbers come through. So I think they'll also need to back it up with a rate hike at the end of the year. Yeah. And and it, just like in the UK, would that take a toll on Treasury yields? Yeah. So Treasury yields are around sort of 2.3 to 2.4%. We can see them going a little bit higher over the next 12 months or so, probably about 25 basis points or more. Um, 
I think while I, while I sort of talk about the near term, we, we see some chance of improving growth in the states or acceleration in growth. I'd temper that in that I do think the Fed will continue to be very cautious with its in the way that it conducts policy. Um, I mean, some, something which we haven't mentioned is just the, the debt overhang in the developed world and the US economy and the UK economy. That will make central banks very cautious in unwinding these policies because essentially interest rates now pack, pack a much greater punch than in previous cycles. Yeah, and we have been hearing a lot, haven't we, about the kind of record um, debt that the consumer, the UK consumer is holding. So yeah. obviously a bit of a headwind. And so just in terms of high yield and particularly US high yield, how appealing is that looking now? I mean, it's an area that uh, people have moved into, haven't they, as, as bonds have delivered lower and lower yields because obviously it does have a higher return, but also higher risk. Yeah, I mean, on the surface, high yield looks okay. It's been great performance. Um, the uh, default rates globally are, are coming down. They're sort of sub 3% now, and they'll be sort of getting closer to 2% or um, that sort of level over the next 12 months. I think we do have some concerns, though, about the high yield market where you're getting spreads of around sort of 350 basis points, which, which sounds good. So the spread is the additional yield on top of a government bond. The problem, though, with that level of spread is it doesn't compensate you really for, for the true default and downgrade risks, particularly if we see any sort of downturn or any sort of economic um, challenges. Because mm. what you're holding here are essentially much higher risk companies, right? Yeah, so high yield is sub-investment grade. So anything that's rated by the agencies, um, double B plus or, or worse. And that's not to say that they're junk or terrible companies. It's just that companies might, um, for tax reasons or for, uh, for investment reasons, have a, a bit more leverage. Um, but from an investor's standpoint, point, you want to make sure that if you're investing in those bonds that you're going to get your money back yeah. and you're adequately compensated. Within the European high yield market, while the yields are lower there, it's a safer high yield market to go into and that's still offering some decent value. So we actually have a bit of a preference for Europe over the US. Okay, so if, you, if I had to ask you, you can go anywhere in the world, what are your favourite and least favourite bits of the bond uh, market to invest in now? I'd say that we like... Um, you know, we still advocate being a bit overweight credit versus government bonds. So and credit being corporate debt? Credit being in a, in a very general way, um, corporate debt, high yield emerging market. So anything that's non-government. Um, so being a bit overweight credit versus government bonds. Within the credit world, um, we're becoming more cautious on high yield for the reasons I mentioned. Uh, we'd have a little bit of a preference for Europe over the US high yield market. We do like playing uh, some of the wider areas of fixed income because we think in this environment you know, you're very late in the cycle. You need to start thinking about potential that at some point we might get a recession in the next couple of years and preparing your portfolio for that. So we have a preference then for you know, really looking at the true credit quality of what you're buying. So markets like the emerging market debt world, we think you can get good portfolios together in that area um, that have an investment grade or closer to investment grade risk profile. Um, you can get yields of 5 to 6% or so. We like that market. Uh, we also like uh, what we call the hybrids market, so things like um, financial, financial contingent convertible bonds. So these are quite subordinated bonds issued by some of the banks, but we tend to focus on the, the high-quality banks. Also, these corporate hybrid securities that have um, – they're also – that are deeply subordinated, rank lower in a capital structure, but they tend to be issued by high-quality companies. Um, so it's, these are ways, these hybrid securities are essentially ways to um, 
capitalize on sort of household names, companies that are pretty well established and well known, but you go deeper into the capital right. structure. So we like we like that uh, that area as well. Okay, well, thanks. That's a, that's a really good review. So thanks very much, Curtis. Thank you. Later in the show, we'll look at the problems hitting the peer-to-peer lending industry. But before that, we turn to renewable energy trusts, which were dealt a blow in March this year that could affect the yield they generate. I'm joined now by personal finance writer Emma Adjaman. Emma, why are renewable energy trusts so appealing to income investors for a start? Well, simply because they throw off quite a high level of yield, with an average trust yielding about 5%. And their income strings are often inflation-linked and government-backed. Okay, so what kind of premiums are they trading on as a result? So, not surprisingly, they are on quite high premiums to net asset value, um, with average trust trading at a premium of 9.5%. Okay, pretty steep. And what is this thing that changed for renewable trusts this year? Why have they come to this kind of crossroads? Well, one of the key reasons they've been able to generate these yields is due to generous government subsidies. Um, the most uh, recent well-known was the Renewables Obligation Certificates, or ROCs for short. Um, but as you said, in March, this scheme closed to new projects, which raises the question of how renewable trusts are going to continue growing um, their yields in the future. OK, just how important have these subsidies been for trusts' earnings? Pretty important. Across the sector, they account for around 60% of the revenues um, that these trusts generate. Okay, so that's pretty extreme. Does that mean that renewables aren't getting any subsidies at all now? No, there are still some some subsidies around. Um, These are feed-in tariffs and contracts for difference. Okay, and what do do they do and how do they compare to the rocks? Well, feeding tariffs are actually targeting smaller projects than rocks, so maybe won't be as relevant to some of these trusts. And contracts for difference are available for the larger projects that rocks also covered, but they're going to be um, available for a shorter period of time, 15 years compared to 20 years with rocks. Okay. When do the old generous rock subsidies run out then? Well, the good news is that rock subsidies last for 20 years. So any projects that a trust owns that already had these subsidies um, attached to them will continue receiving the revenue for the full 20-year period. Okay, so does that mean that trusts investing in these things could just buy the older projects that still benefit from rocks? Yes, they can. Um, but the problem is there's a lot of competition for those assets. So prices are quite high at the moment. Okay, so if not from subsidies, where else do renewable energy trusts get their income from? Well, another sort of main source is that they get money from selling um, the power generated from their renewable sources onto the open market. And that, at the moment, accounts for about 40% of revenues they receive. Okay. So to what extent do trusts need these subsidies and do projects need these subsidies to keep growing? Is renewable energy becoming more profitable anyway? Um, Arguably, they don't need these subsidies to necessarily keep growing because um, for their existing projects, you know, as long as they've got um, projects that have uh, these subsidies attached to them, they're still going to be receiving the revenues for up to 20 years. And then there are other ways that they can um, grow their grow their sort of um, trust in the future. So, for example, a number of trusts have been increasing their overseas exposure to renewable projects abroad. And some of them have also been expanding the types of assets they invest in. Another issue is that um, some parts of the industry, particularly solar, have the costs have dropped so much that they're actually becoming quite profitable and may not need subsidies going forward. OK, um, so give us an example then of a trust with quite good potential to grow in a lower subsidy world. 
Well, Next Energy Solar Fund is is one example. It's a fund that has, up until this point, generated income from solar projects in the UK, and it's currently yielding about 5.5%. But it's done a couple of things recently to flag its future growth intentions. Um, It's expanded its investment policy to invest in overseas solar projects in places like the US, Western Europe, and notably Australia. And it's also said that it will start investing in unsubsidized solar projects, although it anticipates that's going to not be profitable for the next couple of years or so. Okay, great. Thanks, Emma. Now, finally, peer-to-peer finance, where borrowers lend directly to investors for a high rate of interest, has become very popular in recent years, particularly in our low interest rate environment. But this year, it has hit some notable problems. Um, so, Emma, P2P has become really popular, hasn't it? And it, it basically offers investors a much higher rate of return than you might get on uh, other bonds, for example, or in a, or in a bank account. Um, how does it work exactly? Peer-to-peer platforms are like alternative to banks. Um, what they do is they cut out the middleman and they by bringing lenders and borrowers together directly on their websites. And in this way, they claim to be able to offer higher rates um, to both parties than banks do because there's obviously less costs involved. Okay. Um, and is this always lending to individuals? Is it lending to businesses or, or what? It can be both. So different platforms will actually lend to different audiences. For example, Funding Circle only focuses on businesses. Zopa only does personal loans. Um, but Ratesetter does business, personal and property loans. OK. And why are the rates so high? I mean, we're talking of what rates of um, the past up to five, six, seven percent and a bit lower now, right? Um, yes. I mean, they say that it's due to the fact that they're cutting out the middleman. If you think about all the big overheads that banks have with their branches and things like that, you can see if you can just bring lenders and borrowers together, you can actually cut out a lot of those costs. Okay, but they, despite wanting to make it sound a bit like a banking system, it is not uh, like a banking system, is it? And in terms of of risk, it's much higher risk. So what are those risks? Um, It's definitely something that should be considered an investment rather than a saving product because you could potentially lose money. Um, And one big difference um, in P2P lending is that it's not protected by the financial services compensation scheme. So that's something that investors need to understand. And the people that you're lending to, is there a higher risk that they will default on those loans? Um, Quite possibly, um, because it it really depends on the due diligence that the platform has done and the creditworthiness of the people that they're lending to. Okay, so this year we've been hearing a bit of negative noise, haven't we, around two companies in particular. Um, Who are those? So these are two of the biggest and most established players in the market, Zopa and Ratesetter. Okay, and what's been happening at Zopa for a start? Well, Zopa is actually the oldest P2P company, um, but this year it's had to close to new customers after finding itself unable to match the soaring lender demand with the borrowers to be able to lend to. Okay, so what's it done? So they've put in place a waiting list on people who want to be able to lend on the site, and that's actually swelled to a total of 15,000 customers. Um, so there's, there's been some problems there. And another issue is that existing SOPA customers have been experiencing problems 
selling on their loans in secondary market that Zopa runs. Um, so basically what will happen there is that customers who would no, for some reason would no longer want to hold the loan to, um, for the full period should be able to sell their loans to other Zopa customers. Um, but in August, investors were forced to wait up to 24 days to sell on their loans. And that's compared to the usual period of a 24 hour time frame. Okay. And they've said, haven't they, that this is, um, kind of in relation to the launching of their innovative finance ISA, which is an ISA where you can hold P2P investments. And we should say that they say those delays have now come down and um, are due to be resolved by the end of the year. But mm. what about rate setter then? What's been happening there? Well, early in the year, rate setter were hit with problems um, with free bad loans. And they actually have a facility which um, is a provision fund, which they say that in the case that investors are going to be hit with defaults the provision fund should be able to cover that but in this case um because the loans were, were you know could have been quite detrimental they actually decided to intervene in the companies directly to pay back the loans um directly to customers rather than um use the provision fund okay interesting um so what does happen uh you mentioned the provision fund there what does happen to people's money if borrowers default are there protections in line Different platforms will tend to have different ways of of mitigating risk. I and mean, we talked about those platforms that have a provision fund. Um, but other platforms will use things like mortgage securities and asset backing in the in the um hope of being able to to prevent that possibility taking place. I mean, others also use a diversification of among a basket of loans um, so that investors are, you know, on it. hope that you wouldn't lose everything all at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, but Zopa is actually retiring its own provision fund or its safeguard fund, isn't it? It is. Um, it says that due to um, the Treasury's new tax guidance, which allows investors to offset peer-to-peer loan losses against the tax, it kind of removes the need for funds. So that's why they're going to be discontinuing it. Obviously still a very popular part of the industry. So we will be keeping an eye on this in the coming months. That's all we've got time for today. So for everything we've talked about, pick up the magazine this week. Otherwise, we'll catch you here again next week.